have my, uh, I was getting dressed today and then I uh, put this sweater on because this is what I wear when I first wake up in the morning and I, I drink uh, tea by the wood stove. And it's like my, it's like my comfort blanket. It's like a sweater that's a blanket. And uh, I guess I, uh, I, uh, I've never worn it outside the house because it actually probably smells really bad. Um, I never wash it, I just wear it in the mornings. <laughs> Tabitha just looked at me like, <laughs> I don't know why you're telling us this stuff. I'm telling you this because uh, what I'm talking about this morning is personal and difficult. And I don't didn't intend to talk about it. Um, what I really wanted to talk about this week and what I thought I was going to talk about was um, reading scripture with a sense of wonder and how it's like how it can be like an antidote to stress. And um, how a lot of times we read scripture uh, to answer a question or to build an argument or to come up with something to teach about. I mean, a lot of times we have an agenda when we read scripture. And um, this idea of reading it with a sense of openness to wonder with no agenda. That's all I wanted to teach about. But because of what's going on in my personal life, I could not get all of that out of the way to actually put together a coherent teaching about something that was unrelated to um, my life and the struggles that I'm currently in. So, um, ben, uh, ben has recently, this is nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but Ben has recently been uh, offered a, um, uh, what's it called when you get the job above your job? Promotion. A promotion. <laughs> Thank you. Well, he's been offered a promotion and uh, it's the only, so he, he's, a, uh, he's a therapist now and he works on a home-based, community-based therapy team. So there's like caseworkers and there's uh, peer specialists and there's therapists and there's like lead clinicians. There's like all these different jobs. He has done every single one of those jobs except the peer specialists because the peer specialists would actually be someone who's dealt with it in their life. A lot of times it's addictions. So a lot of times they're people who are in recovery and um, so work on the team. And they're really effective um, therapeutic uh, part of the team. Uh, and I was joking with him that uh, it's th this would now be the only position he's done except for being a peer specialist, and it may actually eventually qualify him to be a peer specialist. Because <laughs> it will likely be very stressful. Anyway, uh, I was thinking about being a peer specialist and how a lot of times uh, preachers or teachers or people in church um, at least feel like they need to have their stuff together to um, uh, lead in a church or to share in a church or to even be part of a church. And uh, today we'll clearly uh, illuminate for you how not together my stuff is. Um, I, I love one-liners. Uh, most of my Instagram feed is full of these ridiculous one-liners that I'm like, ooh, yeah, that sounds right. Um, I just got a t from Kent. Oh, <laughs> genuine laugh. <laughs> uh, so I saw this one the other day, uh, and it said, we're all beginners, and it's all we'll ever be. And I think when it comes to... Uh, sin and being sinners, it's certainly true. We're never going to be to a point where all our thoughts and actions are righteous. And so um, I guess maybe it comforts me because I feel like uh, I am 
uh, sadly um, thinking and behaving in ways uh, that I know are not very unrighteous. So we'll just jump into this. Let's see, what do I got here? So I'm going to do, uh, I actually joked with Ben, I was like, maybe I'll just pull up one of my old PowerPoints and I'll just like redo an entire teaching verbatim and see if anyone notices. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, do it. Because he's always for me uh, like taking on less work. Um, so actually, I did end up using quite a few um, quite a few of my slides from the teaching I did about uh, having repetitive thoughts and uh, like strengthening neural circuits in your brain that aren't uh, productive maybe aren't even true and they're places that you easily go to without uh it's like where you go when you're just uh not being uh not taking your thoughts captive like it's it's where you go easily and 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 how the majority of our thoughts are repetitive anyway so i'm going to use quite a few of those and i'm going to tie it into something that quinn brought up uh when we were together a couple nights ago um all a lot of us and then um also going to share um, some, I'm going to tell you what I keep alluding to. Um, I am going, yeah, this scripture I'm going to start, I'm going to jump off with, it's from 2 Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy. Um, this is really close, I guess, to right before Paul dies, and he's been, there's a lot of persecution, and Timothy, um, is like a leader in the church of Ephesus, and there's a lot of false teaching going on. It's really just kind of like they're in a tough, both of them are struggling. And Paul is um, encouraging Timothy and just how to go forward. And um, this is something he says to him. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, instead he, I put she there. He must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. I also saw a one-liner the other day that made me crack up. And when I read this scripture, I immediately thought this next thing. I'm going to explain why it's not the same. But this is what I connected it to. <laughs> Those of you who are on the um, listening, if anyone listens, it says, it's a Brene Brown quote, and I love her. And it says, don't try to win over the haters. You're not the jackass whisperer. I think there are instances where people get caught up in social media trying to engage with people that's not going to be productive. That is what I think that is referring to. Not relationships that you're in and that you want to continue to be in. Um, so um, I have been struggling with my relationship with my in-laws um, probably since the beginning of knowing them since I met Ben. Um, my, actually, we, when we were engaged, we, um, we were at his brother's 
uh, wedding reception. It was actually another reception that, they, that his parents threw here, even though they were married and had receptions in New Mexico. And we met an old family friend. Uh, you guys might know him. His name's Ed Probst. He's an old uh, dermatologist, I think, in town. Or he, I mean, he's been retired for a really long time. Um, I think his son is now also a doctor, so you might know Ed Probst Jr., um, which is two different people. Anyway, he uh, he's an interesting fellow, and he kind of interrogated Ben and I on the spot after meeting us and finding out we were engaged. And he wanted to know about my family and uh, their political beliefs and their religious beliefs. And my parents are um, my parents are definitely liberal, super liberal. Um, they are organic farmers, and uh, uh, let's, I mean, they're not even really Democrats. My dad voted for, um, oh, I'm going to forget the guy's name, the Green Party guy that, was it, no, oh, I had it, it was there, it's lost. The guy, Nader, Ralph Nader, he wrote, he voted for Ralph Nader, and Ralph Nader ran for like 20 years or something on the Green Party ticket, right? My dad would vote for Ralph Nader. He would have voted for Jill Stein last time. I mean, this this is this is where they are politically. They're very liberal, and um, the Catholics, but very liberal interpreting Catholics. Um, and Ben's parents are uh, very are conservative evangelical Christians. Very very conservative evangelical Christians. Um, and Ed Probst, after listening to me, because he knew Ben's parents, said very. At the time, I thought arrogantly that we were going to have trouble and that our prospects for a happy marriage were, in his eyes, basically less because of where we were coming from, from our upbringings. Pretty arrogant, I thought. Pretty bold. Um, and I, we both, like, dismissed it as um, silly and narrow-minded. Like, we both have our own... Um, values and beliefs that we've uh, that we've established independent of our parents and Ben and I's beliefs are compatible with each other with each other. So that's silly. Oh, you know, we can we're bigger than that. Um, but uh, he, you know, I realize I'm afraid this is going to go stiffen on me. I realize now that uh, there was some wisdom. He may not have said it very eloquently, but he hadn't. He, he knew more, had more wisdom than I wanted to admit. Um, and so, Ben, just so you guys know, I, I, I asked Ben's permission to talk about this, um, and I'm, I'm trying really hard. Basically, what's happened is over the years, I have had no agenda of changing my parents, my in-laws' minds about anything. Um, and I haven't engaged with them in arguments with this kind of mentality of like engaging in foolish arguments is gets you nowhere. And so I just don't. Um, but many of the things that they say and they do trigger an angry response in me. They irritate me, step on my toes. They cross what I feel like should be obvious boundaries. Um, but because I don't engage in discussions with them about what I believe differently. Possibly they don't know where those boundaries are. And so I have over the years started uh, brewing up a nice pot of resentment towards my in-laws. And uh, 
and it has gotten bigger and bigger to the point that it affects my thoughts outside of the time that I'm with them. And, and it's, it's lots and lots and lots and lots of little things, but all those little things not let go and held on to. Like now, in the past year or so, when I would be with them and they would do one of those irritating things that felt like was offensive or crossed my boundaries or it was just something that triggered an angry response into me, instead of letting go of that little thing, I would take it and I would be like, oh yeah, put that in there with all that. You know, I would connect that to all my other resentments. It would, you know, oh, that makes, that makes this pot valid. Look at that. There's another thing to put in there. And uh, it would just grow and grow and grow, and I wouldn't let things go. And I didn't even realize I was doing it because in my mind, I was tolerating their beliefs. I was being respectful by not starting an argument. I was being considerate of Ben by not being argumentative with his parents. But I was also, like I said, stirring up a giant pot of commitment that the way that I think about them. Let me see. What do I have? Oh, some of you may have heard this. Evidently, it's uh, been said by lots of people in lots of different ways. It's something that is common in... Uh, I'll put another one on the back side to keep it from... <laughs> My computer keeps it's trying to come off tip off for those of you who are listening. Quinn's going to fix it for me. I'm going to try. Other than a different. All right. So this says, for those of you who can see it, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Nelson Mandela said a version of this and uh, several other Christian writers. And so there's not really, I couldn't find one specific person. Evidently, it's something that uh, Ben was listening to Jimmy talk and he had just been listening to a podcast by Dak Shepard. Um, and uh, he had talked about how they um, talk about this in AA a bit. Um, I'm curious what you guys, have you guys ever heard this? Okay. And I don't know, what's your, does anybody have a reaction to that? Yeah, I, I haven't heard it just like that, but I, I've heard of a, a similar version, which is more along the lines of, <laughs> holding bitter resentment against someone in a nutshell is letting them win because they're fine with it, but it's eating you alive. So you're allowing that, you know, it's, it's even worse than just being bugged by what they did. Now, not only are you not bugged, but now you're allowing them to negatively affect you. So I think it's the same, sort of the same, similar thing. I am hoping, or at least assuming, or maybe assuming and at least hoping that that each of you possibly has a pot of resentment that you can uh, empathize with me. Maybe they're much smaller than my giant cauldron. Um, but um, I didn't, I, I didn't, uh, my, my point wasn't to like make you guys sit in here for my therapy session. Um, I was hoping that, uh, that you might be able to relate it in some degree. Let's see. So I uh, I listened to last week's uh, 
teaching, and I don't know if you guys were here, but uh, Quinn talked about uh, what it's like to the emotional uh, effect of being ghosted by someone. And, and it really convicted me because uh, about, about five months ago, uh, there was like, there was an event that happened that was more than just crossing boundaries. It was, uh, in my perspective, I need Ben, I mean Ben here, because whenever I talk about things, he's always, he's like the, he's like in the corner, he's like, or no, he's, uh, he's like in the courtroom, and he's like, leading the witness, or, you know, he's always like, in your perspective, from your point of view, as you see it, that's an assumption. From my perspective, my in-laws willfully uh, kept something from me that endangered my children. And uh, and that was enough for me to blow up, to, lo- to finally lose my goal. Um, and then I realized that I had, and it also made me realize um, how angry I was and how very little perspective I had on it. So for five months, I've had almost nothing to do with my in-laws. Um, and uh, I essentially ghosted them. So thanks, Gwen, for convicting me. <laughs> I mean that genuinely. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, where was I going? Oh, and then, this is all the, and then, Quinn brought up this idea, or not this idea, this thing he'd heard Greg Boyd talk about, which is um, your brain being an elephant and a rider. Um, and I, w- I, did, I was able to listen to the podcast. Uh, I listened to it on Ben's. Actually, no, I like stole Ben's internet on my phone so that I could download it back. Was my interpretation correct? Yeah, I, I was. It, it of course made me like look into it more. Um, Greg Boyd was had read this book, which is called *The Righteous Mind*. It's by this Jonathan Haidt guy. It said, "Why good people are divided by politics and religion." So I was listening to the podcast. He mentions this book is where he gets this uh, this analogy or of uh, the. Um, Brain being an elephant and a rider, and so I immediately like start looking up this book because you guys know how I like to read an entire book the day before I teach. <laughs> Luckily, this book is 500 pages. There was a four-week wait at the library to check it out, and the audio book was 40 bucks. So I, I couldn't; it was inaccessible. I couldn't try to read this whole book yesterday. Um, but in this book, the guy talks about. Um, what is actually not Jonathan Heights? Um, he talks about this image of the brain being an elephant and a rider, which is it, which is talked about a lot. It some people even um, I think associate it with kind of Buddhist teachings. Um, so it's a, but it's a broad thing that that a lot of um, people who talk about behavioral understanding your behaviors will talk about. So it is. Um, I wish I could bring up my notes. Maybe Quinn can help me and anybody who else understands this. But basically, we have the old, old part of our brain that we share with animals, basically. The reptilian part of the brain, right? It's the it's where we get the fight or flight response. It's what it's what pours out that cocktail of of, um, of chemicals on our brain when we need to fight or flight. It's it's an, the emotional 
part of our brain. It's the quick response. Um, and then we have what has evolved more in primates and in, in more recent, you know, in the last million years or whatever, um, which is the reasoning part of the brain. Um, I think the last hundred million years. Um, the reasoning part of the brain, the analytical part of the brain, and how most of the time, whether we want to admit it or not, it is that elephant part of the brain, the emotional part of the brain that we operate out of. And that uh, our reasoning part of the brain is kind of just writing that without much control. There was, he talked about a thing that was really hard for me to take. And that is that um, for the most part, we make our decisions and our behaviors using that part of our brain. And we use our reasoning and analytical part of our brain to justify it. We don't act because of what we, let me get it right. Our actions aren't based out of our reasoning more than they're based out of our, our monkey brain. We just use our reasoning part of the brain to justify our monkey brain. They talked about uh, brain imaging that they can do now and to where they can see like what part of the brain's firing. And you, when you ask people questions, even basic questions, even questions that across the board people are going to probably answer the same, the response is an emotional response. That part of the brain fires first. It's the quicker part of the brain. And then that makes sense. It's the part of the brain that you need to fire quick, and it does fire quick. So you have an emotional response first. You have, you respond out of a, a real base part of your brain first, and then you justify your response with your analytical part of your brain. And everyone does this, and it's the easiest place. It's what's easy. There, It's not saying that you can't act out of your reasoning part of your brain but that it's much harder and we hardly ever do it. He, uh, Greg Boyd was talking about how he'd been at a cafe and he'd watched some people come in and then when they came in, they were getting along and they were laughing and then a conversation started. And then you could feel it change and you could see them getting upset. And before long, they were fighting. And by the end of it, someone's leaving. And, and he was talking about how when, when you get angry, when you get triggered by uh, a hot topic and you start arguing with someone, uh, you're not really using reasoning and neither are they. And it's, and it's really no better than two apes beating their chests and growling at each other. Like this is that it's, it's, you're not going to influence. A lot of times when we disagree with people, we try to we try to have a like a high level debate with them, but when we're upset or when they're when we push them to be upset, there's no influence that's happening because we're not using the analytical part of our brain. Do are you guys tracking? Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't even know where I'm going. This is loosely connected somehow. <laughs> are you riding the elephant? All the time. <laughs> The elephant is out. My elephant is out of control, and I am riding it. No, I think so. Part of me, so I'm trying to like put this all together because part of me recognizes that 
my parents trigger me in emotion. Not my, not my parents. My parents do too. My in-laws <laughs> trigger an emotional response very easily. And I ride the elephant very easily. And my, and so what I do is I, I force the elephant, elephant to be quiet, basically. But, but I'm still riding the elephant in my head. Let's see. I'm trying to remember where I was headed. Do you guys see? Resentment is certainly part of the elephant, yeah. Or resentment is a product of allowing myself to just ride the elephant rather than to control the elephant, to lead the elephant. Yeah. I knew that this was going to be difficult to talk about because I was going to try to talk about it from, uh, you know, without, like, dumping my stew of resentment on you guys and, and like getting you on my board on board with me about why my parents, my in-laws are, are, you know, truly the jerks that I think they are in my brain. I don't really think they are because the fact is they're not. They're really nice people. <laughs> they really are. But so much of my brain has has arguments as to why actually, you know, why they're not. Um, and so it's it's just, I thought that I could connect it to this elephant thing and also to, um, I'm gonna go to this. Well, there, there's a scripture in the Bible um, and, and Greg Boyd was talking a little bit about like, um, so we get this, we, we get this from scientists that Tell us that we're really we're really acting out of out of this low level functioning part of our brain most of the time. We do have this higher level functioning part of our brain. It is possible to act more out of that than rather just use it to justify the base level. And scripture actually calls us to do that. And this is something I talked about last time when I was talking about recognizing your negative uh, repetitive thought patterns. And um, so this scripture comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. It says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The last part that we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That book that I read that, that, that I talked about several months ago about uh, recognizing your uh, repetitive negative thought, thought patterns, um, I was asking Ben last night, I was like, how do I, like, how do I relate this to this idea about riding the elephant? So this says, why must we bring every thought into captive to Jesus. Because if we don't actively stop firing unhealthy neural circuits, those unhealthy thought patterns will not degrade and our characters will not be transformed in Christ-likeness. This is the meaning behind the famous reinterpretation of adultery. When Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Jesus knew, of course, that if we continue to commit sin in our imaginations, those unhealthy circuits grow stronger and our characters cannot be healed. This is like, this is like the resentment uh, as poison, right? Ben said, yeah, I mean, riding the elephant is that. That's where you just go where it's easy. You just, you know, you let your brain chatter as it chatters without uh, stopping to say, is that true? Is that healthy? Like, you go where it's easy. And when, when you spent 15 years going, you know, building this circuit, uh, my in-laws don't respect my, uh, my opinion. Uh, they push my boundaries. They're jerks. And then before too long, it's like, my in-laws are jerks without anywhere in between. And that becomes a highway. And we all do that. We create that. And so you have to get off the elephant and, and uh, lead it sometimes as much as you can. So I've been the therapist, which is helpful sometimes and annoying sometimes. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay, so I recognize that I'm triggered by your parents and that when they, uh, when something happens and it triggers an angry response to me, I go into this stew of negative thoughts that are true or not true. Basically, um, they're unproductive. What do I do? And he, uh, he had some suggestions, but I'm curious, do any of you guys have a practice in your life that you do when you realize you're stewing. Maybe we go talk to somebody else that that won't take my side. <laughs> Still said talking with someone who won't necessarily just take her side. I uh I'll like disengage and distance myself emotionally so then I can like look at it from far away because I think if you're like close to it and like holding on to it very closely you can't think logically or productively so I think like just it's it's kind of bad sometimes because you're like shutting down from that person but you kind of have to like put some distance between it to like look at it from the outside so to speak yeah I do that too. But in the same way, it's like I might distance myself from the person and the event and the things that do it, but I might still stew. Like, how do I gain perspective without slipping into my repetitive patterns of thought? Does anybody else? Yeah? I've been uh, frustrated that I can't get the outcome that I want. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I do about it, and I try to think how I can get it, and then I still can, I'm still doing. So you got to go back farther to the source and really look at why do you want that and maybe change that course because, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're the, yourself is the source. You just come up with, well, I don't want it anyway. Some of it might be a little sour grapes, but, you know, uh, just to try to get this, 
just you, you're you're in a circle with your stewing and you can't you can't get out. Haley, did you have something? Yeah, I I was just gonna say I like to journal and I afterwards I like to like meditate and the journaling I just I feel like I need to just get just like flow this energy out in a way and so I like if I'm really angry I'll you know write everything like everything I want to say to them and everything or whatever it is or everything I want to do or what I wish would happen to them and what type of person they are or whatever so I get all that like out and then usually once it's like followed out of me that's not how I what I would ever want to actually tell the person but it's just a good way to like get my energy out but then like doing a meditation or like trying to come back to that helps like let me move in like have that separation between you know you and the situation so you can like see it you know clearer so at least that, that's what helps me just being able to like step back yeah, I think everything you guys have talked about is really insightful. I mean, you were all describing, basically, getting off the elephant and trying to lead it. Ben was saying that um, one of his therapy, that one thing that he suggests for people when they're like, I mean, in the moment, they're just like stewing, they're angry, and they just they're stuck and they can't get out of it, is to what he calls drop the anchor. And it's like, see five things, touch four things, smell three things, Here. another sense of two Here. things. Hear two things, you know. <laughs> and, and it's a practice of taking control of your thoughts by going through dropping the anchor going through and, and intentionally doing these things that engage the senses, allow you to gain control. And then when you're done with those, it's very easy to like go right back in to the stew. It's like, okay, I, I, he said that and I was like, okay, I'm gonna get through those things and I'm gonna jump back in the stew. And he said, well, you need to, at that point you have control. So you, you're in, you, engage, you engage the, uh, the analytical reasoning part of your brain, and you say, what is it that matters to me here? And how can I behave in a way that moves me towards my value, what actually matters in this outcome to me, which is a lot of what you guys are talking about. Um, he does what he calls acceptance and commitment therapy, which is, uh, which is a lot of just uh, helping people realize what their values are, what matters to them, and behaving in a way that moves them towards that. Rather than um, feeling bad for the thoughts that you have and being crushed by that. Like when you forgive someone and, uh, and you really think you forgive them and then you think about what happened, again, something brings it up to you and you realize that you're still hurt and that you still have resentment, and feeling like, uh, the fact is you can't stop those thoughts. Those thoughts will happen. And that you're not bad. There's not something wrong with you because you are suddenly in the position of needing to forgive again. That's just the way things are. You can't control your thoughts completely. But you can, like like we said, get off the elephant and lead it. And, uh, and you just, it takes a lot of... Um, 
intentional bit lot of mindfulness. Um, so. I, I know for me, um, if I get angry about something, um, I usually try to say something up front and try to stop it from getting to that point. But I, I think for me, I have to be honest sometimes. It's like, uh, I mean, there's there's times I've gotten angry, and it's like I want to stay angry, and and it's and it's like um, I know it's not right, but it's like at this moment, it's like I really want to stew in my anger, and I want to stay angry for a while, and I don't know exactly why I do that, you know, but. I mean, I usually try to, like, if something bothers me, I say something, and I try to stop it. Or I at least back up and say, is this really worth a battle? But sometimes things happen, and it's like, I just, I mean, I think you just have to be honest with yourself. Do you want to be angry or not? And once you finally, like, I'm tired of being angry, you can kind of move on and all that. But uh, for me, that's part of it. And sometimes I get, I get upset with people, and it's like, I don't want to get over this anger yet. And, and then, but then the whole thing is like, you know, eventually you have to get out of it because it, it never leads to anything good. You know, eventually, eventually it's the whole poison thing you talked about. It, it drains you down more than it does the other person. But I think it's being honest about the angry Yeah, the Bible uh, says, um, what is it? Don't let the, let don't the sun go down on your anger. It's so, obviously we're going to get angry. It's not like an expectation that we're going to reach some holy point where we don't get angry. But as as a Christian, as a believer, as someone who believes in reconciliation, we have to we have to find a way past that. I was reading through steps of forgiveness yesterday, and one of the steps, uh, and I'm sure you could find a million different lists that aren't exactly the same, but this person had come up with these. Seven steps of forgiveness um, from a Christian's perspective. And, and of course, it gets to like pray for your enemy, like in step four. And uh, and when I read that, it was like I, I, I could like feel my emotional part of my brain fire. It's like, I don't want to pray for my mother in law. The best I can do right now is to confess to God that I don't want to and pray for him to. Let me change that. It's a process, right? One of the other things I was thinking the other day is that, I don't even know what my thought was, but um, I was thinking that we can we can call, like, uh, these people are, like, really nice. But if we don't agree with them, we will not say these people are really good. That we can actually say somebody is nice but not see them as good. And, and I think, I don't know what to do with that, that thought. Because you can usually hear somebody's way nice, oh, they're a good person. It's like, well, no, really, they're not. But they're just, they're, they're nice. Yeah, this, um, this book, I read a forward and I read like um, a, a synopsis on, of, about it. And uh, I think I, I want to get my hands on it because talks about how um, people who you don't agree with are operating out, they're, 
justifying, just like we're justifying, why they believe, why they act, and why they believe the way they do, out of this um, emotional part of their brain. And they have legit reasons. A lot of times when someone believes very different from you, you just think they've been duped, or they've been brainwashed, or you, you can just logic them out of this brainwashing. But they have read like the reasoning they're using for the way they believe is based in something good inside their heart inside that inside of them so this guy is i i think it was written for liberals to open up their minds to conversations with conservatives i'm not for sure but that was the gist that i got from it um i don't i think it would be a really hard read for a lot of us i think it would be really convicting read so i'm curious to read it This was just another. Um, this says the good news is that many brain regions remain changeable throughout life thanks to a condition called neuroplasticity, and this is particularly true of the prefrontal cortex. As we exercise healthy neural circuits, these circuits develop, strengthen, and expand. Conversely, the brain prunes unhealthy circuits when we leave them idle. This is something I talked about when when I was talking about um, just the repetitive thoughts that you have, and if you're not careful and you just ride the elephant, then you just keep that path plowed down real nice and level in your brain, and it's easy to get there. I don't know if you guys, I, I know this is true that your brain prunes circuits you don't use. Have you ever, like, ran into somebody from high school that you spent, like, 12 years of childhood with, and you can't remember their name? And, and you're in your brain, you're just like, that doesn't make any sense. How could I not remember this person's name? I lived half my life with them. I went to a little school that was K through 12. But Jill and I went to the same school, actually. And so these kids, I was in kindergarten through through senior year, same school, same group of kids. And and because I haven't used their name or thought of them or seen their face for five years, I don't know their name all of a sudden. And, and the same is true, is if you will really just, when you recognize yourself, telling yourself lies or using unhealthy thought patterns, if you will give up allowing yourself to stew in them and go down them so easily that your brain can actually change, that it will actually trim those negative, it can actually trim those highways of negative thought out of your brain. I like that. That's comforting to me. That one just seems like scripture. I don't even know why I put it on there. I'm going to let it go. Anybody want to wrap this up? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope that I didn't just dump on you guys because it certainly wasn't my intention. Um, maybe just, uh, I guess my hope was to uh, talk real about real problems. And um, go ahead, Amy. Um, what you had just had up there uh, about the pruning is like that's a great way to describe what we all call mellowing with age <laughs> you know and what what's happening is all all the things that that need to be pruned and uh perfected and honed better uh you know is is uh happening over over time and it's very encouraging that um 
uh, all of us are a work in progress and getting uh, you know better and better at it, which gives you some comfort uh, toward the stewing and uh, and and the things that trouble you is that you know you're 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 gonna you're gonna be better next week than you were now. There'll be a few setbacks, but overall you are progressing because of that pruning. hear that, but it doesn't necessarily jive with my, my first thing. <laughs> Maybe we'll be yeah. pruned beginners. <laughs> well, you constantly have to prune something. You know, yeah. You prune it once, you know, it's done. You can go back and keep pruning. That's true. It grows back, doesn't it? Yeah, each one of those is a beginning, too. Yeah. So just a few weeks ago, I heard a lady say, I think I shared it here um, in one of the teachings I did about um, really taking that time to find the root of why is a good person saying something that's really honking you off. Um, but, but that really got me thinking about, I had a situation with my own father where he said something pretty hurtful to me. Um, and I shared that with a few people just to kind of see what people say. And people are like, oh yeah, that was hurtful. <laughs> you know, shit probably shouldn't have been said. Um. But I try real hard to go over there and spend time with him. And I'm really quite amazed whenever there have been plenty of times that I just didn't want to go. and uh, But I, I kind of forced myself. And, I, and when I actually go over there and we just sit down and we just talk for half an hour, um, it's really surprising to me, I think, how God uses that time to help me realize you know, that, man, he is a really good person, you know, he's a really good person, and, and we're just, our, you know, our paths are just not lining up here very well, um, but it helps me to, to, to not think so negatively of him, so I don't know if anyone else has had that, but but I find out the more ghosting I do, the more I, 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 I spend longer periods of time not talking to someone, um, the more difficult it is for me to view them um, as the good person that I know they are, like, like I know they're a good person, but it's like it's it's easier if I've spent time with them. Um, even though when I spend time, sometimes other stuff comes up. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that is something that anyone else thinks is helpful, but that's been helpful for me. So, oh, it's absolutely true, and and I even know that with my in-laws in in. You know, it's not like I haven't tried to deal with resentment and frustration with my in-laws in previous years. Um, and I can easily get myself in a position of thinking really poorly about them. And then I spend uh, a dinner with them. And, if you know, unless unless something really obnoxious happens, um, I'm like, they're not terrible people. They're obnoxiously nice, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I say obnoxiously. They're genuinely... People who genuinely are not trying to uh, cross my boundaries or hurt me. That's absolutely true. I'm trying to figure out how to go forward with this relationship in a way where I don't brew up resentment, but I don't have futile arguments. Um, and uh, so I'm just beginning on that journey. 
it's it's also really difficult to then see someone after you haven't seen them for almost five months. Um, the longer you go to someone, the harder it is to go back. So, yeah. Um, I'm going to pray and uh, pray that you all pray for me. Um, we have communion. Um, forgive me if I've, if I've loaded onto you. I, it's not my intention. Um, God, thanks so much that we can come together and that we can discuss hard things in life. And uh, we can have a place where we belong um, as, as broken people. And we just pray that you help us all to do things out of love, uh, to take captive our thoughts, and um, to live always towards the hope of your reconciliation in us and in the world. Um, our um, unbelievably grateful of the sacrifice that you made so that we could be married into your kingdom and that we could be children of God. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.